Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. My guest on the podcast today is Anyarada Gajaraj Lopez, who has undertaken a great task for translating a book of deep spiritual knowledge called Augustia Vazipadu. Translated, it means the way or the path as shown by Augustia. The knowledge contained in this book was divinely revealed during meditations to her late father, K.M. Gajaraj, by the great sage Augustia. It is said that Augustia, as an avatar, is one whose universal consciousness is beyond time, beyond space, beyond perpetual continuity. So we talk about who Augustia was and is. We also talk about the aspects of the avatars, Augustia's input on the purpose of all life and many other topics that I hope will stir your heart and open your mind to live a better life. As always, I hope you enjoy it. Well, Anu, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I loved reading the book that you so heartfully translated and transliterated for, I guess, what, two, three years of your life? No. Actually, the translation and transliteration occurred over a period of only five months. Five months? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I know it is amazing, but what I've understood is as we progress on the path of spirituality, and I, I want to make it clear, I'm not a guru. I'm not an advanced uh, a disciple. I'm just beginning on my path. But so many things that we do in life becomes that much more easier because we are on the path of spirituality. Hmm. So what? How, how I was able to do this in five months, I don't know, because there are a lot of things about this book I don't know that is, I wouldn't say rationally possible, but it has happened. Yeah. The entire book has been like that. So we will talk about it. <laughs> yes, we'll talk about all the grace that is present in this book. And your father, who is the reason why you really wrote this book. Yes. Um, so let's start with the name of the book, Augustia, The Path. Mm-hmm. So maybe a lot of people listening will be familiar with the sage Augustia, um, and, I, and, and many will not. So let's just start there. Who was, or I should say, who is, if, if he exists beyond time, immortal? <laughs> who is Augustia? And mm-hmm. what is uh, Vazipadu, or the path or the way? Agastya is one of the most ancient rishis of India. Uh, rishi is basically, re is a, it means, it's a syllable which means sound. And the one who hears divine sounds is the rishi. So he belongs to the category of these divine spiritual beings who existed in ancient India, who actually were able to connect to the divine and bring sacred knowledge to the world. So these rishis, they brought knowledge that covers everything from surgery, medicine, and when we're talking about surgery, we're talking about plastic surgery. Mm. Yes, astronomy, astrology, aviation, physics, chemistry, mathematics, and of course, more important than all of that, yoga, Mm-hmm. And yoga, as you know, is you know basically to unite our consciousness with the divine consciousness, so we can find liberation from this birth. So, Augustia was actually one among them, and we find, uh, if we go in terms of what is extant knowledge, we find the first mention of Augustia in the Rig Vedas which is one of the oldest of the Vedas. And I assume people will know what the Vedas are. They are old ancient Indian scriptures that were said to be divinely brought, as I explained, by the rishis. 
and he composed 25 hymns or was the author of 25 hymns in the Rig Veda. And from there, we see his presence in all the four major Vedas. Hmm. And we are now talking about a time span of 1800 BCE to 800 BCE. Wow. And we are talking about when a person is hardly able to live about 80 years, an average lifespan, and at the most, a little over 100, we are talking about a vast expanse of time. And then we see him again as an author in the Upanishads, which are again a very philosophical body of text. And then in the delightful stories of the Puranas, which came much later, which are basically stories that have been carried through the Indian tradition, which talks about the gods and goddesses and legends, but have a lot of deeper metaphysical meaning. And those, they, they range for all the way up to 1000 CE, from 250 CE. So we are again talking about a large lifespan. And every aspect or legend of Agastya is found there. Then we see he mentioned in the two great epics of India, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Yeah. So again, you know, we are seeing one particular sage completely, you know, being continuously present in all these different scriptures and legends and even historical texts. Because much later, we have what was called the Sangam or the literary conventions in Southern India that ranged from 400 BCE to 200 CE. And that's another long, long period. And they were supposed to have been four Sangams. And of that, he is said to be the first chair of the first Sangam. And historical texts referring to that are available in the third Sangam text. Mm. So, you know, we are talking about somebody who's in the scriptures, in the legends, and now historical texts. And then it continues, you know, we find thousands of books that carry his signature name, Agastya, like Agastya Mata, Agastya Mata, which is gemology, and Agastya, uh, you know, a lot of other books like that. So, then we come to somebody like my guru, Paramahamsa Yogananda. You know, he has written a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi, which is famous around the world. Mm -hmm. In that, my guru says, Agastya has worked many miracles during the centuries preceding and following the Christian era and is credited with retaining his physical form even to this day. Mm. So, Something that is being said by a great yogi like Yogananda cannot be taken lightly. So here's a great modern yogi who's testifying to the physical presence of Agastya to this day. So if he's retaining his physical form, is he still walking on this planet? That is, uh, you know, if we look at it that way, people who are realized, enlightened beings, are able to assume physical form and walk on this planet when needed. Yeah. Do you think he's doing that right now or does it even matter? He, he comes and goes. You know, okay. I, but to explain that, I have to explain another thing. Okay. The geographical presence of Agastya. So we see the presence of Agastya from the entire Indian subcontinent, from the northern to the southern. We have, you know, lakes, mountains, star, a village named after Agastya. Then we see that his presence is seen in all the South Asian countries like Cambodia, Indonesia, Thailand. And we're thinking, how is it possible for a man to traverse such a huge geographical area? That is because enlightened beings are not confined to human limitations. Mm -hmm. What science is now discovering is already being practiced by them. So they can actually appear at will at any place. They can appear as light. They can appear as a physical form. Got it. Yeah, some people believe that he lived for 4,000 years. I know there are a lot of different theories about that, but I know that he exists even today because okay. my father actually saw him before he died. 
And he came came to him in a dream or in deep meditation? Was he in deep meditation or was he just kind of like doing the dishes? It was during the day. And um, that is, it's going to be interesting to explain this. And as you said, it may sound weird, but as Agastya told me when I questioned him about all these things, he said, do not seek to convince anybody. There'll always be some who will be convinced, some who will be not convinced. And that's okay. Right. So what happened was towards the end of his life, my father went with my uh, sister and my mother, uh, you know, to a particular temple in southern India. And my sister actually recounted this to me, and my father told me, but you know, that was a long time ago. He passed away. So they found this short, you know, Agastya is short, short in stature. Found her, found this. Um, uh, you know, person, you know, in the same garb as Agastya, with a, a, you know, trident in his hand, sitting on the temple, and wherever they went, they saw him. And illusion or maya can be so strong that my father saw him but did not recognize him. Mm. So when he came back home and went into meditation, then Agastya spoke to him and said, son, I came to you, you did not recognize me. Wow. Yeah. And that is something all of us in the spiritual field have experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seeing something, our rational thought comes back and you know, the Maya covers up again us with a veil of illusion. Yeah. Yep. That's <laughs> certainly my experience. And mm-hmm. other people I've talked to, like mm-hmm. yourself, where it's just you can't really explain it. Uh, sometimes you have no control of your body and it's just this piercing of the veil that your, your, your rational uh, uh, human mind will never make sense of because it's coming from another sphere or dimensionality or, or energy that's not of this plane. So and you know, I'll get it. Talking about that, I'll give you an example. I'm going to give you an example of Christ. Christ is an avatar, as we Indians think. The son of God, as the Christians think, right? Right. You know, he demonstrated the, the, the idea of illusion so clearly in his life. You know, when he did that, he was on the cross. Yeah. And he said, Father, have you forsaken me? But we know that he was son of God. He was an avatar. There was no way he could rem- not remember that. Yeah. But when he said those words, he was telling us it is okay to be covered by the veil of illusion. That is part of being human. Yeah. But with his resurrection, he showed that you can transcend those human limitations. Yes. See, everything that Christ said or did is a lesson to us. It's not just the Bible. If we just follow what Christ says or did, in every single thing, there's so much meaning, so much lessons we can learn from him. And so that is where I talk about the veil of illusion. And, you know, people have this funny idea that once somebody is on a spiritual path, they're angels. No, that right. does not happen. Right. We, if we get that perfect, we wouldn't remain on this earth anymore. Right. So until we find that final liberation, we will always be subject to Maya, which is illusion. Right. My teacher would say, we always want a little bit of karma while we're here. Otherwise, we're going to just take off. So I want to be here long enough (laughs) for my kids. And, um, you know, I don't want to burn everything right away. So... (laughs) Yeah, in in due time. Well, just back to that. Do you think Christ or Augustia, for that matter, since we're talking about Augustia, but either of them, do you, let's start with Christ. Do you think Christ was an avatar that do you think he came in as an avatar? Do you think he came in as some believe as an avatute, meaning he was a human with karma, transcended his karma, came back as an avatar? You know, as far as I understand, I think he was an avatar because we already know the story of John the Baptist and what happened. You know, he was there in the previous life and he came back again. So right. these people are all, whether we are talking about Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Paramahamsa Yogananda, all these great spiritual teachers are all avatars. Okay. So they because take they the assumption have, of a body. No? Yeah, they do that. They, they willingly 
subject themselves to the limitations of human birth to help us. Got it. Like my guru says, Yogananda says, you know, when uh, Christ was on the, on the cross, he could have commanded legions of angels to help him. Right. He did not. Because he was teaching us another lesson there that we, as divine beings, must rely on ourselves to understand how we can, uh, you know, come out of the problems or challenges we face and realize our divine self. And that is the purpose of every life on this earth. Amen to that. Who is your guru? Paramahamsa Yogananda. Okay. He's definitely on my puja wall. I love him. And it, those that are familiar, um, Christ being one of my teachers, you know, Paramahasa Yogananda is a Nath yogi. Jesus Christ was a Nath yogi. So they're all in the same lineage of the, the, the great son. Um, so let's talk about your dad, your father's mm -hmm. experience right. with Augustia. And, and, um, and by the way, I, I find it fascinating that I don't believe you couldn't even read Tamil language. I still don't. Wow. I mean, and his whole book was written in this language and you... Uh, most of it was written in, in Tamil and some of it in English because it all depended on who was writing it down. Okay. And it was either it was my mother or me and I would ask him questions. You know, I was asking Agastya questions as my father went into meditation. So let's go back a little to see how exactly all this happened. Yeah. And how did you experience, what was your experience watching your dad receive these sort of downloads and spiritual experiences? You know, it yeah. was, I was a journalist. <laughs> I was fact-based, objective. For me, it would have, if I hadn't been a journalist and been an ordinary person, maybe, I, I mean, like a common man, I would probably have accepted it more easily. But for me as a journalist, I had to actually witness it over a period of time, actually be there over and over again and to really know, oh my God, this is actually happening. Uh -huh. I even questioned Augustia. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how I did that, but I did. I said, how can I be sure that it's you talking through my father? And what did he say when you- he said, yeah. He said, your father is all, all, also aware of his surroundings when he's talking. He has his knowledge too, but I, people like me, you know, sages and munis, who are not able to communicate directly, we find people like your father, change the character and speak to them to help the world. I love that. Yes. That's so, so find that exact word. So I would love to say that here. So yeah, but I get that. You find they find the right individual <laughs> that they can shape their character so that mm -hmm. it can be translated and ex <laughs> and understood and um, seated in the consciousness of others. Yeah. In fact, I did find that uh, paragraph. Let me read that to you. Yeah. Gods and Munis who cannot be seen by others and hence cannot directly advise people, choose some people as disciples or devotees. They set right the character of that person and through them help the world to walk on the right path. Beautiful. Which is really takes me back to my first question when we say, what is Vazi Padu? It's the, Vazi path. Vazi. It's the path of liberation, right? It is. So what it, when Agastya first said to my father, you're going to write a book called Agastya Varipadu. Believe me, neither me, my father or my mother knew what Varipadu means. <laughs> so then he said, he himself answered the question. He said, what is Varipadu? Varipadu is walking on the path that I show, mm. listening with reverence to my words and worshiping with devotion is Balipadu. That's so pretty that's clear. Tamil world. Beautiful. Well, you do mention that he says to attain um, 
what does he say? He says, oh, of all the givings, he says that all of all the givings, knowledge is the greatest giving. Yes, that is true. Because, you know, anybody can give money, material, food. Or what does it help a person? Yeah, there's no doubt there's great help. You know, people who are starving would be happy to eat. But when you give knowledge, you are addressing the most primal reason a soul is reborn in this world, which takes birth in this world. That is to understand its own divinity. Mm -hmm. So when you're giving knowledge and telling them, okay, this is what you are, this is what we are supposed to do, this is where we are going to go, we are not only giving them knowledge of their own liberation, we are also showing them the right path to live because you cannot attain liberation without having the right path. We got to be, you know, honest. We need to live righteously. And what happens when we live righteously? We change. The family around us, around us is more uh, harmonious. The society is, around us is harmonious. We are contributing to a better world. Right. So we have to look at knowledge in all those different layers. Right. And he does talk about how there's two kinds of knowledge, spiritual knowledge and temporal knowledge. Right. Which uh, so spiritual knowledge, I'm, and I'm going to uh, actually quote him because his words are really good. The knowledge given by the Vedas is known as spiritual knowledge. This is the type of knowledge that is not understood by merely reading or hearing about it. This is the type of knowledge that emerges by itself. This knowledge is different from that which is relevant to worldly life. As far as life is concerned, the knowledge that a man gains from reading or hearing is temporal knowledge. This knowledge helps in worldly life. However, spiritual knowledge gives us the understanding of the reason why we were born and how we can attain liberation. So he also says in his book that knowledge is the micro-material that is all-pervading, okay? Which means that no knowledge is new. So what we are essentially doing, and when we say, oh, I discovered this, we are discovering knowledge that already exists. Mm -hmm. It is like fine-tuning a radio so the knowledge is there. A scientist who is constantly thinking about something is connecting to that knowledge because mm. it's already there. Everything, past, present, and future, all the knowledge that has been and is has been discovered and is yet to be discovered is already there mm. in creation. It's just how we connect to it, how we bring it down. That is rediscovery of knowledge. And that makes me think about the nadis in India, mm -hmm. the, the soul readings, and mm -hmm. um, like, how is that so? And some people might think it's a bunch of malarkey. I, I, I had my nadis read and it was my, my whole family have had their nadis read. And it's just, uh, we had incredible experiences of, of course, getting information that there's no, it's nothing Googleable. <laughs> so, because that, that's always something that comes up. Well, can't they just look you up in the great wide internet and, and get information? Not this information. And um, isn't Augustia, Augustia being one of the seven main Saptarishis, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Wasn't he sort of like the arbiter of the Nadis? Yes. See, as I explained, Agustia gave us a, a plethora of books and knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So in addition to Nadis, I'm going to touch upon Nadis right now, but I do want to explain. He gave us knowledge about philosophy, medicine. His uh, medicine he is given is called the Siddha system of medicine. Mm -hmm. And then he also uh, gave us the oldest forms of martial arts called Kalaripayattu and uh, Silambam which are still being practiced, but what is now being, uh, you know, more, uh, becoming more popular is the Nadi, uh, Jyoti Dham. And it is called, if you look at it, Agastya Nadi Jyoti Dham, which means 
is the Augustus astrological predictions. So I know that you have already interviewed Dr. Ku, who is a great proponent of this NADI uh, system. And what it is, is according to uh, the system is that it is a form of predict predicting the past, present, and future of a person based on information about that person that has already been recorded in palm leaf manuscripts. Right. And these manuscripts are available in India. And believe me, the reason why there are some people who uh, you know, may be skeptical about this is because we do have, for every genuine practitioner, a <laughs> hundred fake practitioners. Right. So the discernment is important to know to go to the correct source. Well, my Nadi was apparently written about, oh gosh, I have to look at my notes, but it was like 3,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yes. That is because, again, the concept of time. <laughs> yes, right. What is, what? I mean, you know, obviously time is not linear. It's not linear. So it, Augustia is just going into the future in his meditations and because uh, Augusti apparently wrote my naughties along with millions and millions and millions of other naughties. Is that what he's doing? He's kind of uh, going into the future. Okay. If a person is a, a one point, right? Okay. Standing in one point, you with your abilities can connect to what you call the future, what you call the past or what you call the present. And that is what an enlightened person can do. Or even some of us who are on a spiritual path are sometimes not able to say, get a feeling, oh, this is going to happen. And it happens and we are surprised. But that's because everything, as I said, the past, present, and future is always existing. Right. It's just how we connect to which period that we want to. So if you're talking about Agastya writing, then no, he it's all returned it is there we just are in a time that we call the present and we're trying to get that information right i'm thinking of a friend anita morjani she wrote a book dying to be me and um which became really successful and she had a near-death experience she had she was riddled with cancer and now she's she's completely cured and talks all over the world and writes books and um, and she was saying that when she went into the state when she was, you know, quote unquote, dying, she describes time as being just that she could see in the other realm in between states in between this world and then the next. She could see her father, I believe she could see her brother on a plane traveling from I forget where he was coming from, maybe Asia or India to the States. She could see all these things happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I have interviewed in, in when I was in college, my senior thesis, interestingly enough, was on near-death experiences. I was always fascinated with that. And I interviewed probably over close to maybe 30 to 40 people that had near-death experiences. I, they were at a psychic fair, so I got really lucky. I just went from booth to booth. <laughs> So anyway, they all had the same experience where they talk about time not being linear. They all experience things happening simultaneously. And also other people I've had on the podcast that have had these near-death experiences where they get the experience of what you're talking about with an enlightened being, being you know able to do this, is that they could experience their if, if they wanted to have, if they wanted to be somewhere, they could just think it and they would be there simultaneously or immediately and faster than the thought would come. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. that is the ability that all of us have and we are yet to discover. <laughs> yeah, so what's, what is really blocking us from that? Is it just our spiritual evolution? Is it, what is it? The veil of illusion. It's the veil of illusion. Veil of illusion, because what has happened is we're born and at this time in life, we are so caught up in scientific discoveries, in rational thought, in logical thinking. And these are not necessarily the spiritual knowledge that Agastya is talking about, because spiritual knowledge 
does not come from our cognitive facilities. It comes from inside. Right. So right. when you go deeper and deeper into yourself and you connected, get connected to the divine, that is when you are able to understand truth as it exists. So in fact, you know, there are a lot of questions about creation itself. Why creation? So this is what he says, and that is so interesting. Uh, let me find that uh, while we're looking at it uh, right here, hopefully. Why God created? So he says, and I asked the question, I think, or I don't know what dad did, but he says, so far, nobody has been able to explain the reason for the secret of creation. Ask, why not? Who will you ask? You cannot ask the supreme power and expect his answer. This is because we do not have the relevant instruments or faculties to hear and understand that which is said. That is the most important part of this whole dissertation, which is there are a lot of things that we cannot understand as long as we are limiting ourselves to um, the rational, logical, human limitations. Hmm. We simply do not have the faculties to understand the higher truths. Until, or is it- Until we get connected, we understand our own self, which is what is called self-realization or liberation. Okay, okay. Well, he says to attain spiritual knowledge, you need a guru. Yes. And I think this is an interesting subject because mm -hmm. I've have a, had a guru. I, I now have what I would consider a spiritual teacher. He would never call himself a guru. And, um, and I, I think of my sort of path as being a, a spiritual path. And I think of people that I've met that I have considered to be very evolved, some of my other teachers, and they've not necessarily had a guru. So my question is, well, what about all those people that have attained spiritual knowledge, but have do not have this or do not participate in this sort of guru-disciple relationship? Is it just that they've attained certain levels of spiritual knowledge? And Augustia is really referring to complete tr soul transcendence and cosmic consciousness, which is required it, 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 to have a guru in order to have that be made manifest. Okay. To understand that, let me give you a very simple example of my own father, right? In this lifetime, he did not have a physical guru. Okay. He did not have someone that he had to go and learn to meditate and learn knowledge from. But as Agastya said in his previous births, Agastya was his guru. He was his disciple. Right. So can somebody just sit down and connect to the divine by their own will? Possibly, but how? Because they, we do not know what has happened in their previous births. What kind of penances they have taken? What kind of teachers they've had? What practice they have committed? It just doesn't happen in one lifetime. Right. It is impossible unless you're an avatar to be self-realized at birth or to do it all by yourself. Mm -hmm. So we need a guru, not just to show us the path, to show us how to get there, but because the spiritual path is fraught with a lot of disturbances, the negative negativity that we need to be protected from. And that is what a guru does. We need the grace of God and Guru to continue on a spiritual path. Mm. Unless we have already attained such a level in all our previous births, and that is where the theory of reincarnation comes. Mm. Uh, we all, most of us who are attempting to find self-realization, do need a direction. And it is wonderful to know that there are great leaders like spiritual masters like Paramahamsa Yogananda, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, even St. Francis of Assisi, the saints, they are all there to guide us. Hmm. Well, let's talk about karma. Mm -hmm. Karma being, of course, action. And I love how he 
uh, says in the book that it stems, of course, from our feelings and thoughts, mm-hmm. which are in turn directed towards others. Mm-hmm. Now, my question is first, well, what about the spiritual crimes we do upon ourselves based on our feelings and thoughts? Isn't that a karma? What do you mean by spiritual crimes? Um, self-attack, um, self, um, not uh, self-condemnation, self-judgment, self-hatred, self-harm, all those kinds of actions based on our uh, misaligned thoughts and feelings where we could turn it and direct it to sort of someone else, our anger, and we could potentially hurt someone or do some something wrong or be a thief or whatever, however it manifests. But what about those actions we do to ourselves? Does that generate bad karma or negative I karma? I would not call that a karmic action at all because okay. the spiritual part, none of us are going to start out completely. None of us are going to start, none of us are going to Yes, we are not going to start completely uh, perfect. Okay. We start with all our, all our, you know, negativities, our self-judgment, our, you know, all the the karmic burden we're already bringing into this life. So what we are trying to do is actually become better. Discernment, self-discernment. Every day we are we are understanding, okay, this is not correct, so we need to change. And that I would just call as a spiritual progress, not as a karmic reaction. Okay. Well, Augustia talks about how action and reaction are different and create different kinds of karma. Can you talk about that? Yeah. See, uh, let me read what he says regarding karma. What is it that makes a person act? We need to observe every action that we perform in a daily life and understand the intention behind our actions. So the whole crux of karma lies in the idea of intention. The whole crux of karma lies in intention. Intention. So when we, in, if we do something without thinking, say for example, you know, he gives the example of a child plucking a, a, a flower from somebody's garden. It is not aware that it is doing, you know, Having uh, doing some like a thievery or theft, right? right. That is not karma. Right. So when right. something is done without thinking, without intention, it is not karmic. Without awareness, I'd karmic. say. Yeah. So okay. what it is is when we intentionally harm somebody, and this could be, you know, not just saying, "Hey, I'm going to go beat up that person." It could be something like somebody. Person A does something, okay? And person B looks at what person A is doing and thinks, oh my God, that is directed against me. That is an intention, but it's actually not the case. But what person B is doing is already building up thoughts about this in the mind and creating a crime against person A. And how does this come out? The next time person B meets person A, it might come out as anger, it just erupts. Or it might show up on the family or the people around person B because this person is already going through all these unnecessary negative feelings. So that is karma, where you, though person A has not done anything, it is your own karmic you know, character that makes you think that somebody has done something wrong to you and you're trying to take revenge or you're reacting. That causes karma. Okay. Well, I, I, I love how he talks about the I, a mentally or developmentally challenged child and in, rela- in relation to karma. And he says, I'm just going to quote this from the book and have you comment on it. Augustia says, a mentally or developmentally challenged child is not given a chance to use its brain to make mistakes. So 50% of karma is cleared by just taking such a birth. Whereas the wicked man commits more mistakes and accumulates more karma, he adds more karma to his existing karmic burden. When a mentally or developmentally child is born to good parents, it is the merit of the virtuous deeds of the child to be born into such a family. When such a child is born into a good family, it shows that the child has some merit born out of good actions. 
Imagine a situation when such a child is born to a poor family or parents that do not have, su- have much patience and good some scars. So you see, no individual is born with 100% bad or good karmic fruit. A person who has only good karmic fruit will not be born again. Right. I know. (laughs) That's how the book is amazing. And I have to tell you, my father never did any research. You know, it all just poured out of him as, you know, people asked him questions. I asked him questions. Others came and tested him and asked him questions. And this is how he responded. He unzipped the sky. (laughs) (laughs) It just fell into his lap. Very powerful words. Well, I, I, I think that anyone that does have a mentally or de- developmentally disabled or challenged is really a better word um, to a child that's a parent and is listening to this. I hope that gives them great relief knowing that they come in and they're already burning 50% of their karma by the true uh, fact, by the fact that they, they cannot, they don't have the faculties to be able to, make the choices, um, make the right actions that someone who with their full faculties could. Yes. And that is very important because, you know, all of us who have the ability to think clearly and and have an intention, willy-nilly, we always acquire karmas, however hard we try not to. I mean, because, you know, we are not perfect human beings, right? Right. But when a child is born with you know, development who is developmentally challenged, they do not have the intention. So they're basically expanding their karmas or getting uh, rid of the karmas, you know, because they go through the suffering, you know, that, that doesn't stop, you know, they still go through physical pain, they go through all the other stuff that we go through, but mentally they are no longer adding karma to their karmic burden because mm-hmm. they cannot intentionally use their brains to harm anybody or create something negative. Hmm. Okay. Well, Augustus says that we all get to choose when we die, liberation or rebirth. And my question is, well, isn't that determinant on whether or where we are at, I should say, in our own spiritual liberation, where if we're not, uh, if we haven't burned off enough karma, if we haven't attained certain um, states of conscious Mm -hmm. awakening, we will inevitably, without choosing, be reborn. Okay. This is where I talk about the Bible too, or the Bhagavad Gita, and, and any other religious scripture. You know, when we read the words, we must not take everything 100% literally to the okay. right. Because there's always metaphysical meanings, there's always deeper layers to everything that someone's, like Agastya says. And in fact, he says that in, in the beginning of the book, he says, understand the inner meaning of what I am saying in this book. So yes, we can choose to liberate ourselves, but what is it that we need to liberate ourselves? We need all the things that we need to do in order to be able to liberate ourselves. So I can make a choice today. I'm going to liberate myself, but which means I would be prepared to spend all my time meditating in soul realization, trying to get into soul realization, not doing any bad thing, not thinking any bad thoughts. How many of us are able to do that in this current life? Hmm. So, yes, we can choose when we want to liberate, but are we ready to do it? Are we ready to do everything that it takes to liberate ourselves? For sure, because the alternative is um, not so great. (laughs) Or not (laughs) as great, I would say, not as great. Mm -hmm. Once you know, you know, you don't want to go back and go into that space of not knowing. Well, I just want to change gears for a second here and talk about a subject where he he talks about the similarity between gods and humans. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to just quote again something from the book here where he says the similarity between gods and humans is that both have come from supreme god. Gods too complete their tasks and return to the supreme god. If we look at 
if we if we look at it in this strain, the 33 core gods have not yet attained the absolute. Gods do not have the opportunity to gain full liberation, an opportunity that some ascetics that have taken birth as humans have after un undergoing their penance. So I have two questions on this, or maybe three really. And um, the first thing is, Who are, who are some of these 33 core gods? Are these, is he referring to the karmic board? Is he referring to ascended masters? Okay, in this we want to again, go back and understand the, the basic concept of what is God. Okay. Okay, we are all, we know that there is one absolute, the micro, macrocosm, right? Mm -hmm. And we are all parts of that one absolute. So in that sense, we are all divine beings. We are all souls of the Supreme Soul. Where we are talking about the 33 crore gods, if you go back and look at the book, there's another place where he talks about 33 crore. crore and that, that is where I got the idea. And I'm here very frankly saying that I'm interpreting this as I have understood it. Mm -hmm. So he says, in the beginning of Kali Yuga, there were 33 crore people in India. So now he's talking about the 33 crore gods. So basically, I think what he's meaning is two different things. One is the gods are all of us who have not attained liberation. Okay. Because we are all in the sense gods, because we are all divine. There's no way any human being can say they're nothing less than God. Right. They're just gods who haven't understood our divinity. And on the other sense, we do have some some special beings that we identify as God in the Hindu pantheon or, you know, Christians identify as the, the saints who have higher powers, who have gone back as pure power to help the, those who are still in, in, incarnate in the human plane. Okay. So they are the ones that I think he's referring to as gods when he's talking in this particular context. Okay. Those gods helping us and that is their duty and they remain until the duty is done, which is probably not until every one of us attains liberation. And then we go, if we talk about that, then we talk about the cycle of creation because, you know, from based on the Hindu uh, uh, school of thought, cycle of creation goes on and on and on. So in fact, I've written a book called Contemplating Creation where I have tried to explain this where, you know, we are born as a superior human beings. We, we forget it when we get the veil of illusion, we become the material man. And then we come back and start realizing we are divine beings, but not everybody does. So when the world ends or the creation of this particular cycle of creation ends, those people who have not attained liberation go back into the absolute, come back again, they have not attained liberation. So they come back again to go through this entire process again. And the gods, those who have decided to be gods, who have decided to help, those will continue to come back and come back and help. Just like Agastya says in this book, he says, once you're gone, I will have to find someone else and continue my work. Okay. Back, even though I can go back, I, I want to stay to help these people. Okay, thank you for that. You answered my second question, which is essentially, aren't we all gods in some form? Uh, of course, I think of the quote of Christ saying uh, to the Jews, aren't we, are ye not all gods? But I, I do think he's really referring to them as levels in government, like magistrates, politicians. But then there's the metaphorical meaning of like, do you not see that we're all of this, of the one, the absolute? Exactly. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for so explaining that. And, and my, my last question is, so why do gods not have the opportunity to gain full liberation? Because they've chosen not to. Because they've chosen not to. Because they have decided to help. My father, he said, came back in this birth because he had the desire to help. See, what happens is not everybody who's an attained master goes back. Because okay. once you become liberated, 
from what I've understood reading about my own guru and, and uh, other gurus, you know, once you're already liberated, you cannot just stand aside and say, hey, I'm going to be selfish, I'm going to go back. You want to be there for everybody else who's still going through all the suffering that this worldly life entails. Mm. Well, I'm just going to read and simplify things for a, 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 a hot second. <laughs> Because I think this is a value, not to say everything else we are talking about does not have great gravity and value, but just so people can hear this simple um, information that I think that is very applicable to everyone listening, which is when they ask, he asked, what should one do to have a healthy body and a peaceful mind? simple question that I think we all want to have a healthy body and a peaceful mind. And he says quite simply to be clean, to have a clean and tidy place of living, Mm -hmm. to be, have a peaceful coexistence with nature. Mm -hmm. Boy, is that a lesson right now for humanity? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To um, have the consumption of naturally grown food you hear mm-hmm. that, Monsanto? <laughs> that means no GMO. Mm-hmm. Um, and to refrain from excess in terms of how we obtain what we want, the extent, mm-hmm. and how we experience it. So I was wondering if you could just extrapolate. Yeah, in fact, I'll tell you what. As I have you know, lived this life, I, I keep looking around me and seeing people completely floored by anybody who who brings out concepts with all these complicated words and sentences. Uh But truth is profound in its simplicity. So what is actually what we need to do in terms of our life and how we behave and how we live is lost to the world. I mean, I'm thinking, why is it that we are having to have all these God-realized uh, souls come back to tell us how to live when that is how we should be living? Because in normal life, in the in in a, in a uh, life that we see around us, everything that is not righteous is accepted. It has become normal to do things that that actually a human, who was a soul that has taken birth as human, should not be doing. Hmm. Because it's only when we purify our body, mind, and soul can we attain a divinity. Instead, what are we doing? We are we think it is okay to to lie, to cheat. We have political leaders who do that all the time. Yeah. And you know, in this sphere of life, you see, you know, it's okay to smoke, it's okay to drink, it's okay to use intoxicants. No, it's not. I am not being moralizing. I have done all that myself, but I have realized and I have changed. Mm-hmm. And that is because the world, and I think we were talking about this earlier, is what is the, the, the most predominant guna in this current world? Yes, what is most tamasic right now? What is most tamasic? Tamasic is ignorance. Ah, yeah. Complete ignorance. 99% of us do not know that 90% of knowledge lies behind or beyond the physical faculties. Yes. 90% of us do not know that it is not okay to do the things we are doing every day. But we cannot moralize. That is for each divine person to realize by themselves. You know? I had to learn it by myself. I I committed a lot of mistakes in my life and I am not ashamed to say that, Mm -hmm. but I learned. Mm -hmm. And that is the change we need to see. And when you were talking about live clean, cleanliness, do we need a great sage to come and tell us to be clean? Right. Look around ourselves. How many things have we uh, accumulated that we don't no longer need? And as long as we are, you know, okay, what happens? Let us just take an example of materials that we have. We have a lot of materials. We spend time taking care of it, cleaning it, keeping it safe. 
get worried if it gets lost or broken? Where is the mind going? Back into the material world. Right. Let's take the habit of eating. <laughs> How many of us eat more than we want? Just because something tastes better. And where is the instant karma there? We get gas. We have an upset stomach. <laughs> Adipose so, tissue. Weight gain. And then what about eating natural foods? How much of the food we are eating is natural? How much is grown? It's either you know freeze-dried or canned or it's in the freezer. And if you have heard about the concept of prana, which is energy, and Master Cho Koxi, you know, actually talks about it. And I was uh, very fortunate to meet him in this lifetime. And he says, the frozen stuff, the canned stuff, they no longer have the prana that you need to sustain life. Right, they're denatured. Yes. When are we going to learn that? When are we going to go back to all that? Right. Why do we need... A BMW, why do we need an expensive car? We just need a vehicle to travel. <laughs> why? Why? Why are dogs being taken care of so well, groomed in, <laughs> in America, which is so rich? And why do I see mentally ill people lying on the roads? Yeah. On the streets, exposed to the elements. They don't have a place to, you know, use facilities. Where have where has humanity gone? They've got their heads up their tuchus. <laughs> <laughs> Mental conditioning at its best. What is not normal has become normal. Right. And the only way humanity is going back to where we are destined to go is going back to the basics. Cleanliness in heart, mind, and soul in our surroundings in an interaction with nature. Does Augustia talk about what the future holds for humanity? Actually, you know, he normally just talked about questions that we he responded to ask, questions that we asked. And I don't think any of us ever asked the question, but inherent in all his teachings is the path that humanity must take so that we go where we are supposed to go. But he does refer to what is happening now. He talks about humanity in, in a mad rush, in, in a, a flood. It, it's, it's, it's a flood that is uncontrollable. And he says people, he's choosing people around the world. And it's not just my dad, a lot of other people around the world who are lights, whether it's Reverend Bill, whether it's you, whether it's James Thomas, whether it's Dr. Mahesh, who is uh, you know one of the great spiritual beings in, in uh, India, who's helped me right from the beginning with this book. All of these people are doing their part. Mm -hmm. We are you know at a, a modern age where we think, oh, only those big names who are known everywhere, these are the great things they are. Right. Yeah, just popular. Gosh, I'm so glad you're bringing that up. That's, that's the whole point of my podcast. I want people on that are not the knowns of the knowns because just because they're popular doesn't mean that they're perhaps even relevant or that they're right. They might be, but or, or that they're bringing forth some information that is more um, important than, say, someone who is just living a very ascetic life or a very quiet life and has written a book that maybe 10 people have read. But those 10 people that have read it will spread that information like mm -hmm. wildfire and it will land in the right and proper hands to create the shift in humanity that's necessary. Yes. And that is exactly what I've written in my book, Contemplating Creation, that we are all lights who are doing our part. Yeah. But the thing is, what has become, you know, Agassi actually says in this book so clearly, he says, where there is a leader talking from a stage and people are, you know, praising him, that is all that is exchanged, praise. Yeah. But look at how many people have changed after listening to that person. Right. How many have been transformed? Right. That is the key. 
I love that you mentioned that. And I, I forgot about that because when I read that in the book, it's not when we think about a spiritual teacher, I should say guru in his words, when you think about a guru, it's not how many students he has. It's the amount of people that he has transformed. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think of my personal life, it's like, I left my guru to go to another um, teaching entirely and movement because I loved the people the people were a representation, a demonstration of the loving. And I said, these are my people. I want to be around this. Mm-hmm. I want to know who is teaching this. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be my teacher. Yes. And, um, and that just, to me, speaks volumes. So I love mm-hmm. that you mentioned that. It, uh, it, it has a lot of gravity for me and hopefully those listening. It has nothing to do with popularity. It's like being a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the greatest teachers I've ever had Nobody even has even heard of them, but just because, you know, uh, someone's popular, it doesn't make them a great teacher. I always would tell my students that I would um, mentor uh, yoga teachers. I say there's a big difference between a teacher and an instructor, and there's many instructors on the planet that can instruct. That's great. We need instructors. Awesome. But a teacher really brings wisdom and knowledge and experience that can only come from their direct experience. Thus the wisdom is born Mm -hmm. and thus the spirit or the inspiration coming from that spirit presence can be um, disseminated and shared and seated in the student's mind. So there's a big difference between an instructor and a teacher. And there's very few great teachers Mm-hmm. And there are many, many instructors. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are so many great spiritual beings. I tell you, I have been fortunate to visit and see many of them in India. Yeah. And they're just simple people living their lives. Even yeah. The neighbors don't know who they are. Right. But they are spiritual giants. I got to tell you that. There's a, you know, you, you might see a beggar in India, a, a lady, you know, with matted hair, tattered clothes, but she could be in the greatest state. Right. Because they do not want to show what they have. Yes. They don't need to. Hmm. But then there are, of course, those who are called to help us, like all the, you know, the real great teachers. Mm -hmm. And it's best to follow them if one wants to gain liberation. We have a lot of yoga studios, you know, where people teach them how to move, yogasana. Yogasana is different from yoga. Yogasana is what is being taught in most of these yoga studios, <laughs> where you know, you know how to do different postures. But yoga, connecting yourself to the cosmic self, uniting your consciousness to the cosmic Mahadi. self. Yeah. yeah. That only a few can teach. Yes, well, well, well said and, and worth mentioning. Well, if Augustia could speak right now, Uh, And I know that he can, but if we could give him the last words, what would he say to this audience about life and any directives? He would just say, live simply, live well, live right, and then let go and let God. Hmm. Well, thank you, Augustia. Thank you, Anu. And thank you for this book. That is a treasure, Augustia, The Path. And I just encourage everyone listening to pick this up and all the information's in the show notes. And um, it was such a pleasure to have you break all this down with such heart and such relevance. So thank you, Anu. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for having me in the show. And I think you're a very much an integral part of the spiritual journey that began a long time ago for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he selects people. I haven't tried to do anything with this book. It's all happening organically. It's like he knows what needs to be done. And I'm going to say this for myself and for the people out there. One last word, if I may. Of course. Just yesterday, 
a, a lady, a person that was known to my husband's family and who I hardly met for maybe half an hour many years ago, sent me a Thanksgiving wishes. And I responded uh, as usual. And then I said, hey, did you see my book? And you know what she said? She said, I had at this moment been trying to find a spiritual book that I could read. And she mentioned one of the authors that is famous, but not really spiritual. And then she said, but this is what I need. This, the path. And she actually was looking for the path. And he knew that she needed it. He made her contact me, <laughs> had me respond. And there she was. And she says, she doesn't even want to delete the messages between us that happened yesterday because she thinks it's so spiritual. Oh. That is how this book is touching people. Not millions. It's not going to be a bestseller, but it is reaching those it is meant to reach. Yes, yes, yes. And that's how spirit works. And mm -hmm. that's the potency of spiritual um, prowess. <laughs> it, it's that's how it works. So it's all perfect and it's all divinely organized and ordered and directed. So to your, to your point, those that are meant to read this book will, and will pass it on or share the seeds, the, the, the bijas in here mm -hmm. to those that are meant to um, receive these, these divine ripples of wisdom. And thus, the change has begun. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Hey, guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.